You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. And welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I'm joined as ever by Tobias. Yep, I'm Tobias. And we are joined today by our third friend, in inverted commas, who actually shouldn't be in inverted commas because for once it's not a relation or girlfriend of Toby, it is his actual friend. It's Richard. Hello there, I'm Richard. So, as I alluded to there, as a real friend of Toby, how did you actually meet him? Well, aside from his mother sending me the first cheque, um, we met two years ago. Um, when I first came to Manchester University, actually not as a student here, um, but then when I did eventually come here as a student, we met up again and become firm friends. How did you meet the first time when you weren't a student? So I used to go to Exeter University and I came to Manchester as part of the Manchester Model United Nations Conference and I happened to meet Toby and um, his girlfriend Becca, who was on two episodes ago, I believe, and we got chatting then, got along very well, and then when I decided, mm, not university for me, Exeter, and I came to Manchester, that Toby was still here, so we met up, and the rest, as they say, is history. So, but here's some more detail about that evening. Um, it was the formal social event of the conference, um, which was being held at the Hilton Doubletree by Piccadilly Station. That's right. And... I was introduced to Richard there. I mean, maybe, or it was like for like properly introduced to you. Like, oh, this is Richard, and Beck was like, I've, I met him this today or whatever. And um, then you and a couple other people had gone off to a bar to play pool. That sounds right. Yep. And I was there um, chilling with a beer, and this girl who was um, obsessing over me uh, basically corners me. I was literally stuck in a corner. Oh my gosh, yes, I missed so, it. So, so I'm chilling there and I'm thinking, well, I need to get out. Like, this girl's a psycho. So I excuse myself to the bathroom and then I say, I'm just going to pick myself up from that room and we can go. And she's like, oh, all right. I walk into the room. I say goodbye to everyone. I say, by the way, I am running. Do not tell this woman where I've gone. <laughs> I leave the room and she's facing away from the stairs. So I, I sprint past her, down the stairs, and I, sp I sprinted oh for about, it must have been about 10 blocks to the bar where you guys were. Just to make sure that you saw me. That's so romantic. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. I, did, I didn't want this woman. I wanted Richard. That is actually quite a troubling story. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. It was really bad. That was a very interesting night on a whole manner of reasons. Like we can't get together on a, a friendly, family-friendly podcast. But it's, it's not PG. It's n oh, it's not PG. It's not PG. Cool. Just like the films we're talking about today, I hope. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, yeah, yes. so to, to get, actually get on to films um, after that delightful tale of how Interlude, you met, yes. which you could probably make into a film in itself, it does seem like the start of some kind of comedy. Yeah. Oh, but for sure. Kind of, um, you know, super bad-esque, um, you know, Judd Apatow kind of style, I think, you know. Yeah, I can definitely imagine Tobias being played by Seth Rogen or Jonah Hill. He's, he's definitely got the build uh, for it. You guys... My cinematic parallel is Michael Cera. That How can you not see that? You know, actually, actually, I'm seeing that. And if you if you're not if you're hearing this on podcast, Kermit the Frog, maybe. Mm. Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Becca, Becca says I'm built like Kermit, like I have the same body shape, so that's pretty bad. So it's it's pretty appropriate then, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, I quite like the idea of um, the, I quite like the idea of the question of who would play you in a film. We did it last year on the podcast I did, and my one was, I, I it is arguably this is a narcissistic choice. I would very much like to be played by Miles Teller, Casey Affleck. He's a bit old for me, I think. Fair. I mean, it would be like you're maybe in the kind of. Um, or like biopic of your life, and it's like towards the I don't know thirties, forties. Then so that would be. I'll start off with Miles Teller, and then I'll graduate to Casey Affleck. That's yeah, a good shout. That that makes sense. Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable. You've definitely got the the vibes going now. Have you given it ever given it much thought who you play you, Richard? <sighs> Other than Danny DeVito, I'm not really <laughs> too sure to be honest. Um, oh. I don't think I'm you know eclectic or interesting enough to be in any kind of film yet, but that remains to be seen. You know. Oh, you absolutely are interesting enough for that. Maybe this podcast could be the start of a bright, hopeful film career for me. If so. I had to guess one just going off having only known you for about 20 minutes, I would go for Jesse Plemons. Ooh, that's flattering. Todd from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I, I, I like that, except he has got a, you know, in El Camino, he's got a bit bigger now, so... You know, I'm not sure if I'm really fitting in with that build, but pre-2011, I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was quite a lot of stuff actually online about that, and I think it was one of the weird things about like when they do sequels that they don't film long enough after the originals. Mm. No, they film too long after the originals, sorry. So obviously El Camino is set literally directly after Breaking Bad, and then they all look really different, and it sort of comes across as very strange, doesn't yeah. really work. And Aaron Paul's been aged by numerous um, uh, Need for Speed films. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, but... See, Breaking Bad wasn't actually filmed, so El Camino wasn't filmed that long after Breaking Bad. If you think about it, it was it must have been what? It's it's been what six years? Since? Yeah, Breaking Bad. No, Breaking Bad finished in twenty fifteen. Twenty yeah. So it was, come on, it's not even four yeah, years. Four years. Four years. Not bad, considering there are some films that literally have sequels that come out a decade later or two decades. Um, I mean, that's fine if it's animation, but you know, yeah, animation works. Problem but... with, uh, other, other such films, you know, Men in Black was always one I think of. Yeah. Just how much older uh, Tommy Lee Jones looks. Oh, for the sure. Yeah, there's sort of this weird thing about sequels when they sort of do them, sort of, they have to at least acknowledge the time gap. Like, one of my favourite ones is the um, time gap in uh, between Train Spotting and T2. Right. Like, it really is the whole, like, 30 years has actually passed, and it is really 30 years pretty much in real time. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, that really works. And then when they don't acknowledge that, they just go, oh, yeah, this happened five years later, even though they're filming it. 20 years later, it just comes off as very, very bizarre. Yeah, and it, and it, and it definitely cuts strangely. I mean, I really enjoyed T2, and I really enjoyed the original Train Spotting film. But I had the, I had the, um, I think it's part of the audience as well because, obviously, I wasn't, I wasn't alive when Train Spotting was first filmed, and all of these actors then went on. Some of them went on to bright, illustrious careers. Um, some of them are still known primarily for Train Spotting. But then, when I first saw Train Spotting. Must have been four or five years ago, um, and then I saw T two, which came out just last year, or was it twenty seventeen? It was twenty seventeen. Seventeen, yeah. Seventeen. So that for me, there hadn't been much of a transformation between those times. And in any case, I'd, you know, definitely seen uh, Ewan McGregor before in Star Wars. So that's how I always saw him. Whilst a whole different generation saw him as the character in Train Spotting, you know, swimming into a toilet, toilet bowl. So it's weird because some people see him as. So it's actually the, the the gap is big enough that some people still will see Ewan McGregor as oh he's that guy who was just shooting up smack in Edinburgh when their kids see him as oh yeah no he's Obi Wan Kenobi like yeah and he still will remain Obi Wan Kenobi to me even though you know I'm what I'm watching him 
you know, passed out on the toilet floor in somewhere in Edinburgh. And that's in real life as well as in train spotting, I think. <laughs> there you go. I think it is definitely a big thing for like um, older actors to come across as sort of be remembered, sort of have really iconic roles and be sort of typecast and then sort of new generations can bring them new stuff. Absolutely. Like one of the other ones is uh, Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee is massively famous for like Hammer Horror and also uh, Wicker Man. And that's how, that's how an entire generation, multiple generations, that's how they always see him. But when I see him, I just think of Count Dooku from Star Wars. Yeah, mm-hmm. Count Dooku. And the one that sticks to me in my head is just the, the fact that Christopher Lee has, was recording uh, like black metal albums up until he died. Up until he died, yeah. And I'm in my head, it. people are like, yeah, Christopher Lee. I'm like, yeah, Christopher Lee, horror, black metal. Okay, like, I that's just think, the link I, don't I make. think everybody's going to make that link, though. No, no, for sure. But but it's weird how <laughs> everybody has their own niche. link, though. Everybody oh, has their own link with a, with each actor. And thinking about links to um, actors and films, mm. um, our first question that we always ask everyone is um, to name some of your favourite films, actors, genres, directors. And you've answered with a really... Like, this is a dense list. So, I mean, we start off with films. Um, yeah. Doctor Strangelove, Full Metal Jacket, Fargo, Goodbye Lenin, and The Lives of Others. Right, yeah. So I think if we work our way backwards, we can then go into directors and talk about Kubrick. So um, The Lives of Others and Goodbye Lenin, what were those all about? Yep, so um, it's partially partially a bit of nostalgia here, but um, back when I used to do GCSEs all those long years ago, I, I did German and as part of that, I watched a lot of German, German cinema. And German cinema is a really idiosyncratic, uh, um, very different kind of style of cinema most of the time, especially if you look to older films, um, uh, such as ones with Klaus Kinski, and these great epics that went on to go and inspire Francis Ford Capoya and others. And then, obviously, the history of Germany has rapidly changed since those times um, to go on and include... Uh, to go on and include films that are documenting the former Soviet past as well as the former Nazi past and something that a lot of German filmmakers have to be quite frank with and I chose The Lives of Others and Goodbye Lenin because I really like uh, I'm, I'm really interested in East Germany uh, I'm, I'm a history student um, so I'm really interested in East Germany and how that manifested and one of the actors, the, the the lead actor in The Lives of Others, whose name I forget off the top of my head, he was an actor in East Germany during the 1980s. And if you haven't seen the film, it's where um, a Stasi agent, the German secret police, is monitoring is monitoring um, this uh, famous German East German playwright uh, for who thinks is, there's um, sedition going on. And it talks about uh, the intricacies of home to following, but also the moral conflict that him and his aid, as an agent is following. And I thought, you know, and when he was actually, he died not long after the film was released in 2006, but when he was asked about how he prepared for the role, he just said, I remembered, because he was followed by the East German police wow. and the Stasi. So, and then he's playing the Stasi agent. So it was a really personal telling account. And I don't speak any German anymore, but you can still find the, uh, the film with subtitles. But what really comes across is this really powerful, emotive role. And going on from that, maybe some see it as a bit more immature, but Goodbye Lenin, focusing on the end of the uh, end of uh, the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and how this character is trying to prevent uh, the knowledge of the Berlin Wall falling from reaching his very astute socialist mother. And 
and that was a uh, Danny Brule, I think I think mm-hmm. his name was, who went on to go and film in um, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yes, and he was, and he does this very excellent role of trying to conceal it, and he does, um, he does himself a great service, and it's first it's first his first film I ever saw him in, and I just I remember sitting in German class watching this, just thinking, wow, this is really. It's really interesting because this is very much a part of German culture that we just, you know, in an Anglosphere wouldn't see as much of. Yeah, there's a thing to uh, films from certain countries, and specifically in this case, Germany. German filmmaking has this this touch of um, remembering, I mean, quite fitting for uh, German history, remembering the past and learning from uh, what happened in the past, whether whether they were mistakes of the nation or even, you know, uh, stories of the individual. One of my favorite films um, in German, I haven't seen many, but the one that I always remember is one that we watched in class at school, and it's uh, The Wave. Oh, Have you yes, seen it? I, I remember The Wave. I've, again, another film I saw, but I couldn't quite remember the name. There you go. Have you seen it, Josh? I haven't, no. So The Wave, essentially, it's a group of school kids, um band together and they create their own movement within well, actually, the school. It's actually the teacher. It's the teacher, sorry. It's a way to teach about how fascism... Exactly. Works. So so he kind of gives, you know, makes this kind of social experiment. It's like, you know, kids, you, you form your own groups and whatnot. And the kids start delegating tasks and whatnot. And essentially what it is, it, it plays out like um, the Nazi um, indoctrination. Uh, indoctrination and um, system worked. And it, it's just kind of one of those um, uh, things which which proves how intuitive um, human cruelty can can be to people who don't know better. Absolutely. Um, it's a pretty harsh film. Um, it's not too brutal because it, it's not like it's. I'd say the film is like PG twelve. So yeah, it's definitely a film that is not too brutal and harrowing to watch. But the concept behind it is that philosophical concept of human cruelty being something so natural. And I think that's something that's touched a lot on in German film, the idea of the human character and what it can lead to. And that's why I always found these films particularly interesting. And now looking back on them, is it just because I was doing German at the time and I was enamored by it? I'm not sure, but it definitely, I can always go back to those films to watch because it's always a part of history and a part of time um, that I've always been particularly interested in and been able to examine. I think especially the films you've described there, they're very good at one of the things that's great about a historical film is it is something it takes something that is so well known and iconic, like say the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think it's, it's the anniversary. It was nervous like this week, wasn't it, when it fell? Because um, I think it was quite recently. Yeah, because I was watching six, it. Yeah. I, yeah, I was watching a, um, a BBC News special report about it, and obviously everyone's seen the videos of it coming down. And you mm-hmm. sort of you you have the appreciation that you know it came down. You know that Germany was reunited. You know what a, a fantastic and memorable and sort of iconic occasion it was for the country. But it is sort of that ability to find. Sort of single human interest stories about it that really gives it really sort of sells it in your mind over because obviously it's, it's easy to watch things and sort of especially as someone who's born quite a while after it actually happened it is difficult to sort of get that context of certain events through history and the fact that film can do that is one of the most exciting things for me I think absolutely I completely agree with that because it makes it more than just this grainy footage because it doesn't well. I was born in 1998, the Berlin Wall fell nine years before I was born, which doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you watch the videos 
of it. It's it's grainy handheld cameras and um, David Hasselhoff playing on the Berlin Wall. It almost seems like a completely different world, but of course it's really not that different. I mean, if we think about nine years ago, what we were all doing with our lives, it doesn't seem that long ago. But just because it was nine years before our birth and it was such an iconic, memorable event in history, not just because it was heavily televised, um, but it's, it, it really brings a different kind of message when you see it actually being acted by people, not only who experienced it, but who it's a part of their culture. There's something about the clarity of footage that definitely um, brings stories, not just to life, but but makes them real, makes them something that people can look at and say, well, that could be happening right now. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt when I watched um, Apollo 11, a documentary that came out this year. And essentially, this filmmaker, I can't remember his name right now, um, gathered what was allowed access into NASA's vaults, where they had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of footage of um, the Apollo 11 mission. And all of it was filmed in wide, um, like they, they had wide lenses with premium camera bodies and premium film stock. I mean, they filmed this event knowing that one day someone was going to come along and do this job of putting together this footage to make it real. Like, NASA had it planned out from day one. And it was just something about watching the events unfold in that level of clarity that was just mind-blowing. Because for me, the moon landing, sure, it, it it was something that always happened a long time ago and was this grainy footage from a DVD that was a Discovery Channel documentary that we had um, in my house growing up. Yes. That was it. That's all I remembered. And then this just just blew my mind. So it's, it's what you're saying about the, the clarity of stories, sometimes being told by those who live them, um, really, really, really um, brings the point home. Absolutely. And on that, you, you mentioned it's all this collected, recreated footage. Um, that was already present. What you need to watch and what I watched um, when it came out with Peter Jackson, Peter Peter Jackson, in a collaboration with the Imperial War Museum, made um, and I forget the exact name, but we shall remember them. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. Forget. We shall not forget. I think was the name. Yeah, we shall not forget. And it, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's uh, collated all of this World War One footage and colorized it as well as ad- as well as um, getting lip reading experts to come in and try and um, interpret what the people were saying on the camera slowed it down so instead of these jointy black and white images of the trenches you can see the green fields and the mud and you know imagined conversations about what was going on and all of that overlaid with um, world war 1 veterans talking on um, on audio and i it really really did bring something home to me i i remember you know, most of us will remember reading about World War One and the trenches, and it always seems like this far-off concept, something that is so untouchable. But in reality, it's something that is just out of our generation's uh, lifetimes. I remember watching it when it came out, and it was on the show on BBC One. I remember watching it, and it's, this has been said before, and I'm not treading any new ground here. And but it genuinely, the there's a switch in it where it goes from black and white to colour. And it is the most visceral thing I've ever seen. It's like black and white, and then as, as soon as as soon as it flicks into color, it suddenly flicks in your mind like, oh my god, these people were like seventeen, eighteen. The 
trauma that you're watching unfold. It's not just like black and white silent footage. You sort of, and it does sound. I mean, it might, this might sound crass in a sort of way. It, it, sort of to watch footage that's silent and black and white and not always not very high quality. It can feel very distant from you. No, that's and that's not fair. really feel like something that may really have happened. Well, not obviously it happened, but it doesn't feel as close to you as when you see when you hear the obviously the voices and you see the colour and you actually see it in sort of high definition sort of esque video. It brings a lot of authenticity. Absolutely, yeah. I, I definitely need to watch that film. It, it's been on my radar since it released, and I, I haven't got around to watching it. But if there is a time to watch it, it's this weekend, seeing as um, it's uh, isn't it Remembrance Sunday this weekend? Yeah, I believe it is Remembrance Sunday this weekend. It, as we're recording this, it's the 8th of November, so um, yeah, 11th, 11th is very soon. So it's going to be on Monday. Um, yes. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's... Um, November, so important month to remember those who fought in wars. And as controversial as some people think that is for some reason, but yes, it's it, if there's any time to watch that film, it's yeah. November. Yeah. So to sort of take it back a few steps, back to um, the moon landings, yeah, um, sort of to go a bit conspiracy theory here, so we'll put the <laughs> timbal hats on, to get to Kubrick. It's becoming an Alex Jones uh, podcast now. It's turning the friggin' frogs gay! So basically, the sort of the link I was going for there that's kind of tenuous and it's kind of been lost in a rather bizarre Alex Jones impression, to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> is that given that he is alleged to affect the moon landings, and we were talking about the moon landings, what is sort of, you were saying before, the Stanley Kubrick, what, what does he do as a filmmaker that makes you interested in his films? Well, I think, I think you summed up basically there when you said he was the one who's credited with faking the moon landings. Only someone, is, someone with, who is such a visionary... As Kubrick was not a very nice person. I'll add to that. He wasn't always, you know. There's the famous story of the actors in The Shining. Shady Duvall, basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But nobody, I think, had that kind of artistic vision in the same way. And I don't want to sound pretentious uh, when I say this. As Kubrick did, um, he pioneered a lot of interesting, um, not just arty but interesting cinema. Uh, he's definitely. Uh, it's hence why I included him on my list, on my list of uh, favourite directors. But it's not just those interesting visionary films such as 2001 Space Odyssey and such, or Full Metal Jacket. It's quite humorous films like uh, Doctor Strangelove, which is released right at the height of the Cold War, and yet he still has these interesting, zany characters, which I think shows the depth and interesting, um, interesting appeal that Kubrick could have in any... A variety of cinema and I remember my dad showing me that and just at the end of the film when uh, the the old Nazi uh, scientist is having to restrain himself from doing a, a Roman salute and it's it's a, it's this almost quite comical thing as they're discussing the end of the world and repopulating that this this strange uh, unusual character is parading through as if it's a victory speech for the Germans uh, just 20 years after it all finished. And I think Kubrick is the only person who could really make that very amusing. And I, I'm maybe it's my fault of my own for not examining a lot of more uh, contemporary cinema. But he really was ahead of his time in the kind of ideas and sarcasm and... Uh, I forget the words now, but he he really was just a complete visionary. I think one of the things I noticed, I'm not a really big, I'm not, I'm not a non-Kubrick fan, but I haven't actually seen, I've only seen, ever seen one of his films. I've only ever seen The Shining. I only watched it last week. Yes. But I watched it in a bar in Manchester in their basement. They had a screening of it, and it was the day before Halloween. Right. 
and uh, they sort of, sort of had it on like big screen and sort of had like proper big obviously basement basement of bar. It's effectively designed for bands to play there. So like a massive sound system. And I've never been more enthralled by a film soundtrack than I have. Not even it's not even the soundtrack. It's like the sound design, and it's the bit where the kids on the trike, and it's just going over the carpet and going between carpet yeah. and floor, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's just I've never seen anything like that in my life. Something so sinister after something so innocent, and I think he was really a master at that. Like yeah, it is, I think the only word you can really describe the sort of sound design of The Shining with is just it's oppressive. It's yeah. the most oppressive. It's overwhelming and oppressive, yeah. See, I have two takes on Kubrick, one of them about The Shining and one of them about um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which are, to be fair, the only two Kubrick films I've seen. But um, The Shining, seeing as it's the one Josh just mentioned, um, I thought it was uh, just overrated. Yes, I think the sound design is incredible and the soundtrack really does add that ambiance that is overwhelming. But the film itself, I felt, was just lackluster, and it just didn't feel that um, impactful. And I watched, and I and I and I thought maybe it broke new ground when it released. It probably it, well, it did, but it just doesn't hold up. However, to counteract my hot take and to stop people um, from getting angry, uh, two thousand one: Space Odyssey. I. Um, in my first year of university, I wanted to go watch um, Blade Runner 2049, so I watched the original Blade Runner and loved it. Watched 2049 and thought it was incredible. And there was something about 2049 that made me think, this is the type of film that can only exist now. With the technology we have now, with the understanding of philosophy on screen that we have now, is the only way it can exist. And then, nice. That is a reference for to use. <laughs> but yes, um, Studio Next Door being loud. Um, so 2049 was this kind of film that made me think, this could only happen now. And then I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it blew my mind at how forward-thinking Kubrick was, how that film holds up today and is still, like I think it's probably one of the best films of all time. It just, it's... It holds up so, so well. So what you were saying about Kubrick being a visionary really, really holds up. I think actually what I enjoy about 2001 Space Odyssey, because it's a quite a difficult film to watch for me. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the most cultured when it comes to understanding nuances of cinema and, and um, camera angles, cinematography, etc. But what I really enjoyed is that it brought these great sweeping uh, sets, which must have you know, for the 1960s must have been incredibly complicated to build and um, portraying uh, futuristic technology without having the futuristic technology we have today. So it's interesting um, what you say about Blade Runner uh, 2049 with, you know, we now have modern CGI and um, lots of different uh, facets that can make things seem very futuristic, but they were made this, what I really enjoyed is that with the simplicity of just things such as a black square, um, it's, uh, how Kubrick was able to convey this futuristic image again without having access to such futurism or to such technology in order to better show that. 
I think one of my favourite um, one of my favourite gifs of all time actually is it shows how they filmed the iconic scene where the guy's doing the um, treadmill. There's a massive circle. Oh yeah. Where he's walking on the ceiling, and obviously I think the story is that Stanley Kubrick was told that he could just do it with camera work, just move the camera. But he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I want the entire thing built so it actually moves, so I can get it looking as good as oh. it ever could be. And there's a fantastic. Like, I, if, I would urge you to go and find the gif of it because it's a fantastic thing to see. Oh, I need to look that Absolutely. up. Absolutely. There's something about building a crazy set just for the hell of it that is it's just brilliant because one one of the things that pisses me off the most about film is when you see a big studio film that's just completely mediocre and doesn't do anything special and has a huge budget and you're thinking you've got this amount of money do something with it and Inception they have that rolling set for the hotel fight yeah. and then most recently Euphoria the TV show in episode two I think it is or is it episode one or two um, the main character Rue um, does I, I, I don't know she does like cocaine and some and like Molly or whatever so she is super high at this house party and she walks out of this bathroom stumbling down the corridor and there's like people like some people sat on the floor a couple making out against the wall and then suddenly the whole corridor starts to rotate hmm. and that is even I think even more impressive than Inception because the fact that the people in the background don't react to it makes it just... Makes it highly disorienting. It's so disorienting. But, yeah, it's that idea of building a set for the hell of it that just... It's so satisfying to see when they pull it off. It's one of the things that does, I think, in many ways separate kind of old-school filmmakers from sort of the newer breed of sort of directors is that it's less likely now for people to go to the trouble of doing that. And I think the best sort of case study for that, and even though it's the same director, is actually The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Because The Lord of the Rings is famous for being full of practical effects, and it is incredible as a result. Whereas The Hobbit, everyone sort of, one of the biggest criticisms of it was it felt so sort of sanitised because mm. everything was CGI and just not as good. And obviously in both of them there is always going to be an element of CGI. But and I think it's another thing not to always, always harp on about superhero films on the podcast, but I think that is one of the other things that sort of leaves a lot of people feeling kind of like numb when they watch a superhero film is because they know that none of it is remote. It's just a load of people stood in front of a big green, green or blue screen. None of it seems uh, tangible or authentic, you know when you can compare it to all the films that they had to create all these monstrously difficult practical effects and for that reason not just that that's impressive in its own right but it made the film seem much more real it's like if you take um jurassic park for example if you take the first jurassic park the entire um the t-rex is completely it's mechanical isn't it and yes. i think it's i think it's enhanced a little bit with a bit of cgi but on the whole on the sort of on the base of it it is an animatronic t-rex and it looks incredible and that looks better than I think than the T-Rexes do in the newer Jurassic Park films. Yeah, because it's used effectively, and it, it's something about the scale of um, the scale of the consequences of the story. So, seeing Superman literally blow through a building and it collapses and kills I don't know how many thousand people that are in the building. So you know they're in there, you just don't see them. You you kind of. You know, might might not feel anything because it's like, oh, but Superman, he's doing his job. You're, you you get desensitized to the scale of it, whereas something like Old Boy, for example, um, the 2003 action Korean action film, right. um, is based around the revenge and this character and the fact that he can't remember anything in the world and can't even remember his own daughter. 
So it, it's that, the, the, the familial scale of it that makes it so impactful. I think another fantastic example of that, sort of, that sort of kind of, and I think it's the thing Mark Hamode says, it's show not tell. Absolutely. And one of the big ones for me with that is um, the alien in the first alien film. Because if you watch that film, you actually, when you properly time it, you actually see the xenomorph so little for the... It's like the film's nearly two, two hours long. And you, the t- time the xenomorph itself is actually on screen is probably less than ten minutes. It's like the chainsaw, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. It's built around the horror of the monster is here, but we don't know what the monster is. And I think now sort of the ability to be able to create really kind of cheap CGI, or sort of relatively cheap, is that that's been lost in some ways. And I think one of the things... be a cop-out. Yeah. I think one of the best things about kind of like kind of horror, thriller, kind of like there's something after us, is the less you see it, the more you dread actually seeing it. Whereas if you watched Alien, you saw the alien every five minutes just scuttling around, you'd be, by the end you'd be sort of like fatigued of it and you'd be like, actually, isn't that scary anymore because I've yeah. seen it so many times. Whereas in Alien, by the time you, you don't even see its full figure until the last ten minutes. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone doing that now because they would have spoiled it in the trailer. Exactly. That, that, uh, today, my brother and I were talking over um, Instagram. He sent me the trailer for The Invisible Man. Right. Um, it's a film based on H.G. Wells' classic story. But instead of The Invisible Man kind of wanting to dominate the world, he uh, is a scientist that resorts to stalking and tormenting his uh, girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend. Wife, ex-girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. But basically, he wants to torment this woman. And in the trailer... Um, which pro- one of the reasons why it probably is so kind of spoiler heavy for the story is because it's produced by Blumhouse and Blumhouse take risks with films and sometimes have made great stuff like Get Out but then they've made stuff like um, I'm trying to think of anything to name uh, right now but they have so many horror films that are just flops but anyway, point is um, the trailer just kind of to- shows this hand against a steamy glass of the shower it mm. shows a knife floating Scary stuff, because you know the Invisible Man's there, but he's invisible. And then right at the end of the trailer, um, they show him walking through water or something. So he kind of looks like a transparent Dr. Manhattan from uh, Watchmen. Like, it's just so jarring. And you think, if you're going to show people the Invisible Man in the film, do it towards the end. And if you're going to show them in the film, don't show it in the trailer. I absolutely agree, (laughs) and I think a common problem with modern trailers and uh, definitely part of marketing and trying to market these big Hollywood blockbuster films is that it needs to show all these little details in order to get people really hooked on the idea. I always go back to Star Wars um, trailers, the new ones that are being released all the time. I think the new one, the last new one was released just a month ago. Yeah, it must be. And from that, of course, you can't tell the plot of the film, but you can see all the big shock horror gasp moments. And I really dislike that because I I think that movie posters are probably the best way to get excited for a film. A good mo- movie poster uh, showing uh, a character or two and maybe having a little blurb at the bottom, that's one way to get someone excited because I really try and because a bad habit I used to have was to read synopses of films before I watched them oh, or check no. what the Rotten Tomatoes score of it was, and that was a horrible mistake. I've changed my ways. Please don't crucify me, Film and Friends podcast <laughs> listeners. But uh, I've started just trying to read a little bit about the film, uh, but try and avoid it. So a film I watched recently was a Capote, and I didn't know anything about Truman Capote before, and I watched the film, Philip Seymour Hoffman, 
phenomenal actor, and I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fantastic film because I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen, and I knew it was based off a true story and it was biographical. But I, it, I think now it's harder to watch films and not know what's going to hit you next, or not not know what's going to happen, partially because of the internet and free access to all information, but also because of these trailers that you can watch so much of and so much of and so much of. So then you're just looking out in the film. Oh, I saw that in the trailer. Ooh, yeah, I see that in the trailer. I think when you think of um, Force Awakens, even the um, scene where um, Han Solo and Chewbacca walk into the uh, cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, he says, Chewie, we're home. So that would have been an incredible scene to see for the first time on the big screen. Absolutely. And you put it in the first trailer. Mm -hmm. It is just... Like, you can see why they do it, and obviously it does generate clicks and sort of everyone's taking, oh my God, I can't believe uh, Harrison Ford's back, and it's Peter Mayhew as well, that is incredible. But you do want to save something, I think, for the... Do you want to, like... The best thing in cinema is to see a film and just be surprised by stuff, not to have it sort of predestined for you. Yeah. yeah. See, before I used to have this deep love for cinema, and I didn't go to the cinema that much when I was a kid, I used to um, beg my parents to let me go on their computer with them and go on to the Apple trailers. So Apple literally have a website. It still runs. Like, it's still a thing today. Right. Um, where they just have all the trailers for all the latest big films. And I used to sit there for hours just watching trailers. And now I, I only watch maybe teaser trailer one or trailer one for a film the day it's released. Right. Um, and then I don't rewatch the trailer. I don't watch any of the other trailers. I don't read any reviews um, until I've seen the film because it's just the marketing now is built to. I, I just don't know what it's built to do because it literally you can piece together a film by just watching and reading. I guess, but is it about generating clicks or is it about generating money at the actual box office? Well, I'd That's say, the question. I'd say one and the same most of the time. Going back to we talked about The Shining, the um, uh, what's the name? What's the name of it? It's not Doctor Strange. Doctor Sleep. Doctor, Doctor Sleep. Sleep. Um, I've seen. I saw the trailer for that when I went to the cinema the other day, and again, it was it was uh, having lots of homages back to The Shining, and of course, if it's meant to be a spiritual sequel to it, then you'd expect that to an extent. But this is a film. If if it's meant to be a spiritual sequel to The Shining, I think. Everyone was so shocked by what The Shining included, and it was so groundbreaking that having callbacks to it in the trailer just seems a bit redundant, and it doesn't actually do anything new. It, it, it almost seems like fan service to me. I think there is always a danger to revisit, as we talked about before, uh, revisiting uh, franchises, and sometimes it's done really well, like uh, in the same way that they did. Um, obviously, T2 and Train Spotting worked mm. really fantastically. Whereas you think of some things like uh, Terminator Genesis and the original Terminator, that has aged horrendously. Apparently, I have heard that the most recent instalment of Terminator, Dark Fate, is actually supposed to be relatively all right and isn't just devoted entirely to fan service like the rest okay. of them. Interesting. The last one I watched was. It was a sequel slash spin-off. Was it Salvation? Which... That, that's the oh, one. Salvation. That was, that was the 12. Christian Bale one where you did the rant at the crew end, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I I can't even remember what the film was all about, but I just knew it was a ton of skeletal Terminators fighting this group of soldiers, and that's it. But yeah, talking but... of um, films that um, are not ideal in that sense, uh, so what kind of films do you sort of not... Not hate, but what kind of films don't you like? What kind of genres are you not particularly interested in? What what films are all about the internet and clicks and um, stuff boomers love? <sighs> I, 
I was waiting for this question to be asked because I have had a gripe with a couple of films recently. The first film is the Emoji Movie, which is demonstrably bad on all levels. It is the pinnacle of late capitalism with every single um, kind of product placement and woeful references to pop culture just being jammed into one film in order to gain money, which it has at an extraordinary rate. And it's amazing what children will watch. Of course, that's who it's marketed. And you watch this. I've watched it to my shame two whole times. Why would you watch it twice? The first time I watched it, I was so confused and hurt. I had to re-watch it because I looked at how many times people had watched it and I looked at the box office figure and said, am I missing something here? I'll always try and look at something. I'll watch a lot of films just for fun or for, or, for, or for giggles. And I watched this film for giggles at the first time. I was so horrified by it that I had to watch it again and see if sort of I missed anything. And if anything, I caught more of the corporate consumerist fever. And I had to go and shower straight afterwards it was just a horrendous experience that i would recommend that nobody see i have seen it twice now so no listener of film and friends or indeed presenter of film and friends needs to watch it ever again so you've watched this so we don't have to i have i think i've done the world a service well in doing so here's the question that (laughs) reminds me of my um my old friend tom hunter which Tom, if you're listening to this, I don't know if you are, he's probably not, because we haven't spoken in a while, but we used to be mates um, when I was in first year. He reviewed it for the Mancunian. Oh, goodness. And he walked into the cinema. He told me his plan. He, He put a bottle of Jack Daniels in his backpack, walked in with a Sharpie, and rolled up his sleeves and went, right, on my right arm, every time there's a joke, but it doesn't make me laugh, goes a mark. Every time I laugh, there's a mark on... Um, you know, the left arm. And he said that, yeah, he was um, thinking uh, that he wasn't going to laugh once. And as he was drinking and watching, it, a couple of the jokes caught him off guard and um, he actually laughed and hates oh himself goodness. for it. So uh, that's my question to you. Did it make you laugh at points? I think I had to laugh at the absurdity of it. You know, with these... It had this... Um, I don't really care about spoiling this film to anyone. It's a massive rip-off of the Lego movie. And much much worse so if you imagine the lego movie is actually a very well-made kids film and with some good acting performances in it and a nice little story that still appeals to adults in some way with some um offhand humor the emoji movie is the antichrist it's the antithesis of that film and having dated references to vine having um in this, in this one sequence, they have to go through the Just Dance app, which is not at all long-winded, but it's just an, the ma- ultimate manifestation of something uh, I despise, and that this is this massive consumer culture, and I don't want to go on a political rant. Well, but it's just so absurd that at some points you just have to laugh. What was the second film to drive you to, presumably not this level of despair, hopefully? To a similar level of despair, I must admit, and that was Downsizing which I thought was so... I, I remember watching the, the trailers for it when it came out and just, just on television and such, and it looked like, oh, okay, interesting concept. Doesn't it star... Does it star... Is it either Matt Damon? Matt Damon and uh, Kristen Wiig. And Kristen Wiig, yeah. Kristen Wiig. Isn't the plot, if I remember correctly, to solve over overpopulation, scientists realise that 
they can just create miniature uh, neighborhoods and shrink humans with shrink rays and make them live there. Yes. Isn't that the point? That's, that's yeah, that's okay. what the film is based around and it's all this way to try and um, curb emissions and waste and, you know, save money. But it, it doesn't go... It I think it tries to tackle these issues and it tries to tackle the issues of climate change amongst many other social issues and completely misses on each and every one. It's like giving a five-year-old the penalty, uh, uh, the penalty spot kick uh, in the World Cup final and it just continues to miss every single easy goal it has on how to solve climate change or overpopulation or uh, issues with minority rights I just found it whole the whole film entirely bizarre and I remember watching this with my girlfriend just getting angrier and angrier and angrier watching this film as we as it comes to its exciting climax where either he goes, uh, Matt Damon's character goes into this uh, isolation with a bunch of Norwegian hippies who have also shrank down from the first group of people who uh, decided to downsize or run back to his newfound um, uh, freedom fighter uh, Vietnamese girlfriend who he just decided in one day to fall in love with and it just seems in complete bizarre and it ends in such an unfulfilling way when he goes back to his same life of this nice Vietnamese person who actually I, I, and I forget the actress's name she played a quite interesting role in that film goes back to life helping her with uh, these other poor people who live inside what's basically a shoebox and him just looking back at it like with a face of just contentedness but it's not a contentedness of joy it's contentedness well I guess this is my entire life now because just like you watching this film, you've just sat through whatever ordeal I have had to go through and I am sorry, but hey, you've paid for it. That's bloody depressing. It's very depressing. But that rage you feel at, at films is what I feel with a director that I know you'll sympathise with, um, M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, as As we call him in my household, M. Night Shyamalan a ding dong. And any time there's a... There's that's a, his Christian name. That's his Christian name, yes. And um, any time I've seen one of his films and there's a twist, I'm like, this is the type of twist that a 13-year-old who's just read, has just like done his first week of philosophy at school, watches his film and goes, Dude! Dude! That's how you write a film. And, it's, and it just it's drives so me up the wall. I, I, I also wrote M. Night Shyamalan as one of my least favourite directors. Not as, um, not as much as I detest the two films I mentioned prior that will not be named again. Um, but I, just, I absolutely agree with you. It, it almost seems childish. And lots of people criticise Michael Bay for creating these childish, big uh, uh, blockbuster action films but don't criticise M. Night Shyamalan in the same way for trying to be introspective and interesting if you were a 15-year-old who had read a 1984 for the first time. <laughs> yep. And we're like, wow, this is very profound. Nothing wrong with 1984, by the way. Big up George Orwell. Absolutely. I think Unbreakable stands up, though. Um, Unbreakable... Uh, oh, yes, yes. I confuse it with Unbroken, no. which I love, but Unbreakable. Very different films. Isn't that... Unbreakable, was that it was the, the recent one, or was it the original? It was the original one, so okay. the um, trilogy went... So it started with Unbreakable, then Glass, and then it was Split. I watched Split, didn't go that much no, on Split, it. Split, then Glass. Oh, Split, then Glass, yeah, I watched Glass, yeah, didn't really right. go much on that, but I think... To be fair, I think it is A, underrated, and B, does actually totally hold up in uh, 2019. 
uh, oh. Unbreakable. I must be honest, I've watched Unbreakable in a good few many. I haven't seen Unbreakable. It's definitely worth a watch. It's really like, especially with the whole like superhero fatigue now. It is. It does work on a sort of. I think if anything, it works better now because of all the superhero films that are sort of like so action-packed. Actually, a kind of subdued. Is it a superhero story or is it just a kind of weird story? It actually really works. I think. Okay. Well, that's fair. That's I, the only one I've seen is Split, and I thought um, uh, James McAvoy in it is so good, but the rest of the film just pissed me off. The fact that it's so generic with it, the way it presents itself, and the, the, the script is terrible. Aside from his, he, you know, James McAvoy does all right with what he's got. But I think he's a good actor. He, he's just so good, but the, the story itself is just... Terrible. It's the same as Glass, really. I watched that uh, earlier this year, and it the James McAvoy's performance. Basically, if it wasn't for that, the film would be absolute dross. But it does. It, his performance holds it up to a level where it is actually they are they are watchable. It is watchable, and if you've seen the other two, it is quite enjoyable. But I mean, I wouldn't. It's not going to win any Oscars. Although to be fair, I did see a tweet the other day about how um, James McAvoy is vastly overlooked for stuff like awards. And oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th- I think so too, and I think that's partially because we came from kind of humble origins being on Shameless, and then... Um, Olivia you know, Coleman was on Peep Show, though. That is, that is true, that is true, and that's why, and that's why I'd hope, um, you know, he, he would go on to other things, but I think it's because um, going in the big blockbuster superhero film being uh, in X-Men, it almost taints your... Um, it taints how people view you, and people may see you, oh, it's just... Well, it's like the premise of Birdman which is a film I really love, you know, oh, and, you know, almost semi-autobiographical of uh, Michael Keaton. Oh, you know, he's just an actor who was in a big superhero blockbuster film. You know, don't don't take him seriously. And I wonder, and unfortunately, yeah, Split, in my opinion, wasn't a very good film. I did think James McAvoy uh, was and is a good actor, but he seems to be caught in this trap of being cast into these films that don't really have that much depth or interest and doesn't warrant the acting performance that he's giving them. So it'd be interesting to see him act in a film that's more uh, personal or um, struggling with the words here, more, more substantive than some of these uh, other films. So to take it back to sort of a humble beginning, sort of move on slightly from there. Yes. So one question we always really enjoy asking people is what films did you enjoy growing up as a child? Right, well, we had this conversation just briefly before we came into podcast and I always go back to watching VHSs in my uh, granddad and uh, grandma's house uh, back home in Coventry Uh, don't come to my house (laughs) and we had four VHSs we had Bedknobs and Broomsticks we had Mulan we had Pokemon 2000 and we had uh, Yellow Submarine and Yellow Submarine I think is probably the most iconic to me of those films because I watch other films and I can probably quote Bedknobs and Broomsticks verbatim, but I remember watching Yellow Submarine at maybe the age of three or four, watching this, these great psychedelic landscapes and just thinking, wow, okay, this is fantastic. And I, you know, I've loved the Beatles ever since. I'm, I do a lot of music now and I'm really interested in these psychedelic uh, soundscapes and landscapes and these really strange uh, things that I was seeing at the time that probably would have scarred me if I'd watched it and I was a tiny bit older to actually be able to comprehend it, such as when this hole swallows itself whole and uh, evaporates into a pool of nothingness. And um, when this yellow submarine is going around chasing this policeman around Liverpool 
it's a very unusual film, but it's it's one that I can just go back to and watch because it brings me back to sitting on the floor um, with uh, the creaky fan in the corner and uh, and on these nice uh, beige carpets. And it's and um, probably what inspired me to want to go on and do a bit of music in my life. Just plugging it, I am a musician, and it's. Yeah, it's a very, very weird, nostalgic film to have. I don't think a lot of people um, have even seen Yellow Submarine if they like Beatles films. Most people would have seen Hard Day's Night, which I, again, highly recommend to anyone. But this was just such a strange experiment um, with with a film. And yeah, it's one I've always kind of had in the back of my mind. Has that had any kind of impact on you sort of moving forwards? Like, has it sort of changed your opinion of film itself? It's sort of, can, you ta- can you draw any parallels between, like... Yellow Submarine and films you're kind of interested in now? I, I do like the kind of disorienting uh, um, film with lots of music. Recently I watched a Midnight Cowboy and um, with Dustin Hoffman in it and in that in that film where it's uh, the premise is this uh, Texan prostitute goes to America, uh, goes to New York even and he um, tries to make make it work there and he gets invited with his uh friend who's quite ill dustin hoffman to this weird war uh andy warhol-esque um psychedelic party and it reminded me a lot of kind of the confusion and awe i had when i was watching as a child and i really deeply enjoyed it i you know if you haven't watched midnight cowboy i think it won best oscar in when it was released in 1969 yeah academy award for best picture bafta award for best film and it's, it was really, it's, I'd highly recommend watching it, um, if not just for the soundtrack uh, by um, Harry Nielsen. But I remember watching this just a week ago or so, watching this drear, depressing, drab film, but with these sudden bursts of light and interest and the 60s psychedelia, which I've always been interested in, not just visually um, with film, but also musically. And yeah, I'd, I'd say... In terms of the influence Yellow Submarine has had, some of my favourite films aren't like that. I've explained how some of my favourite films are more character uh, examinations. But it's definitely influenced a lot of how I see things in my life. Like I'd like to dress as colourfully as possible. And I, you know, I, I, I like to kind of... I really idolise psychedelic 60s culture. See, you, you say that uh, of the way you dress, and you've, you're currently wearing some purple Doc Martens with yellow shoelaces. Oh, yes. And I've never actually seen purple Doc Martens anywhere except on you. Well, here we are, and this is the new things we're learning. Get them in any good Doc Martens store. That is the only reason I've come in this podcast today, to advertise uh, Doc Martens. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've always liked bright colours. I love dyeing my hair and um, wearing... Colourful sounds, uh, colourful T-shirts, etc. So it's interesting what film can influence, you know, because I think maybe maybe I'm just making up and I'm trying to idolise it in my head, but I always remember those bright colours, and then I remember always going outside and trying to find similar bright colours in the garden, uh, or you know, with my grand's flower patch, much, much to her dismay. So you know, film doesn't have to just influence what films you like in later life. It can influence just how you choose to act and how you choose to. Um, um, go about your life. Saying that though, I'm not going to hit any blue meanies on the head with a big hammer anytime soon. Blue meanies are safe in this zone. This but is a blue meanie. Blue meanie safe. Meanie safe. <laughs> but yeah, the, the fact that films can really shape the way you think about the world, it, 
it it really it, it's quite impactful. I mean, I always talk about how much I love the Italian Job, the original and only existing Italian Job film, 1969, starring Michael Caine, and that film, to me as a kid, um, it wasn't just the car chase I love, but there was something about this film that. Um, yeah, right at the end. I yeah. can give you a quick fun fact about that. That, yes. was, that was recorded in Coventry's new sewer system. So that's my hometown's claim to fame. That the original thing was uh, the original scene was included there, and you can even go and see the sewer where it was. Though I wouldn't recommend it. Brilliant. Well, I I, I actually do want to check out the sewers, so don't judge me. Is but... this the point where you're going to tell us that the thing that inspired you the most is the fact you drive a mini or something? No, <laughs> no, I I don't I don't drive. But no, it's it's the film made me feel proud to be British. There was something about this mm. film. As a Brit living abroad and someone who'd never lived in the UK, my whole contact with British culture was either while being in the UK visiting my grandparents or just media, the, the telly and um, and film. Absolutely. And there was something about the Italian job that I watched and I was like, yeah, this is the type of film that people watch and they're like, this is a British film. And I got to... Ironically re- titled, but still British. Of course, film. but... And I got to relive that feeling when I went um, earlier this year to Bridgewater Hall here in Manchester. And I got to see an orchestra play the Quincy Jones soundtrack uh, as the film played. So it was the film with a live orchestra. And it was every... When, as the opening uh, quote to our intro uh, is, um, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. When that was said... Everybody got stood to their feet and clapped and cheered. Fantastic. And right at the end, it was just a standing ovation and clapping. And it was just, everybody just clapped at the very British moments in the film. So, basically, to go back on what you were saying, is yeah, childhood films can really, really shape you as an adult um, because of simply the way they are and the way you were as a kid. Absolutely. I think in some ways it's sort of, and I, spe- I think that level with colour as well, is that it can be, I think, on a subconscious level. And I think that's one of the kind of nicest things about film, is that you can take stuff away from film that maybe you don't realise the first time you sort of think about it. And I've noticed that before, like even now when I go to the cinema, I watch a film, and then it'll be about three days later, I'll be doing something completely random, and it'll suddenly occur to me, like, oh yeah, that sort of, I, th- I haven't thought about it like that before. And it's kind of, it's quite a nice... Mandela co- effect kind of thing with colour. You know, you see something or you see something in a film and then you'll notice it much later or you'll notice it in real life yeah yeah it's all like at the time you sort of don't make certain connections and then you sort of kind of realize sort of the certain aspects of films are kind of like sort of hidden under sort of layers of until time can reveal that it's Mm. one it's also one of the nice things about like re-watching films is that you don't notice things you picked up on. You did sorry, you don't notice you notice things you didn't pick up on the first time. Absolutely. And you usually get that with watching a film you watch as a child and seeing all the naughty adult jokes in there. But then, you know, I actually had it watching it recently, which I'm and for uh, as a foreword, uh, I'm horrible with uh, um, horror films. I'm very bad at them. I won't go into how scared I am of even the simplest of horror films. But I watched it first time through you know nearly pooed myself it was that scary and then i watched it again but i was looking out for different features that i wouldn't normally look out for on a film i was looking i was i was listening to the music i was looking out for little things in the background little clues for where um pennywise was or um little facets of the town and of the characters i wouldn't have noticed before and i think that i think that's why 
you know, people can... I think that's why filmmakers are, you know... Every, a lot of people say, oh, I can make a film like that. You know, just stick some... Uh, stick a stick a hot man and a hot lady together with a gun and shoot some baddies and you got a film. But there's actually a lot more nuance in there that people don't realise. Yeah, I think that is something interesting to sort of... Yeah, I think looking back on certain films, especially you sort of see articles on it now, don't you? Like BuzzFeed are really big for doing it. It's yeah. like 37, thing, 37 things hidden in Pixar films you didn't see the first time. You sort of look through it and you think, actually, that is kind of cool. Yeah. But think about what makes a filmmaker is something I've been thinking about recently as well. Um... This week I, I listened to um, the latest episode of the Sardonicast podcast. It's a right. film podcast starring um, uh, YMS, your movie sucks, IHE, um, I Hate Everything, and um, Ralph the Movie Maker. And this week they had on a guy who on YouTube is known as Pony Smasher, who did a short film called Lights Out, but then who, I can't remember his name right now, but he went on to direct Annabelle Creation, Lights Out, based on a short film, right. um, and the new Shazam. The film, well, okay. the, new, the 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 Shazam film, and he talks about um, what goes into making a film, and I think that on the one hand it's that idea of vision. You need to have a vision. You need to be able to to be think outside the box. However, I think the one thing that every filmmaker that is in Hollywood has in common, no matter how terrible their films may be or how great their films may be, is that they have to be the hardest working person in the room. Mm. You, the only reason films that you could think are subpar get made is because they worked hard. So, the, so I, 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 I don't know where I'm trying to get with this, but yeah, it's the idea of what makes a director. And that hardworking um, mentality is probably the main factor behind what makes a director uh, what that, they are. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And on top of that, I think what makes them so important is that it's hardworking on every aspect of the film. Absolutely. You know, again, going back to Kubrick, he worked on every single aspect of um, films like The, Shine, uh, the Shining or 2001 Space Odyssey meticulously. The cinematography, every single take he tried to perfect, and that could have come from a kind of a obsessive-compulsive area, or it could have come with just knowing that in order to make this film good, to make it worthwhile, you have to master every single aspect of it. And as it seems to happen on the show, we've come a full circle again once to the beginning of the show. So closing off um, at the beginning, Richard, thank you for coming on to Films and Friends. Well, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything you'd like to plug specifically for your music? Oh, yes, get it actually. In. So whilst we're here, you're probably listening to us on Spotify. You can also find my band. We're called uh, Hiatus, H-I-A-T-U-S. Uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, you can look for some of our songs. One of our songs, cover of Where Is My Mind by the Pixies. Absolutely fantastic and better than the original. Oh, that's, that, now that's a hot take for another podcast. But, <laughs> uh, look for us. We've, uh, we've got song, a few of our own songs in there as well. And hopefully we'll be recording sometime around the new year. Yep, thank you much for coming on. Uh, you can find me, I'm Josh, uh, at Josh Sandy on Twitter or at Josh W. Sandy on Facebook. And I'm Tobias Soar on Instagram. This month I am doing, with Richard and a couple other friends, Movember. So if you're interested in donating to help save lives and um, by donating to Calm to help resources for, to support mental health, my link is in my Instagram bio. So once again, thank you for listening. Cheers for listening. We'll see you again next week.